And I've prayed that God would help us not to have just one more sermon on Acts chapter 2, but indeed that the Lord would open to us truth that's alive, real, in the form of a message to us that we can apply to our personal lives again this morning. So our prayer is, Lord, anoint our ears to hear it with fresh alertness and anticipation and asking that God by the Holy Spirit would place good seed in good soil that will produce a great harvest. And I know that there are varying degrees always from the scripture. It can fall upon the stony ground and it can fall upon the pathway swiftly, easily carried off and not accomplish what it was intended and had the potential to do. Praise the Lord for good soil. When it falls there, we'll bring forth some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And we have prayed that that will indeed be the case this morning as we share this passage of Scripture together. There is an immediate link between this service and last Sunday service in verse 1 of Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. We talked about the peace of this group of disciples as they continued in one accord in prayer and the effect of waiting upon God and the day of Pentecost needs to be understood to us as a prophetic pre-plan of God and came right on schedule as the Lord had prophesied it would. And as they had in type celebrated year after year, and again gathered back in the city of Jerusalem for one more time of celebration in type of what God did in reality as the early morning hours of the day of Pentecost was fully come. So they were in one place, and they were in one accord. They were in peace. Let me ask the question this morning, how many people does it take to change the world? How many people does it take to affect the society in which we live? To change the spiritual temperature, the social problems, the economic and political structure of those communities around us, how many people does it take as we look at the passage from last Sunday morning, the number identified for us is 120 gathered here in this upper room when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Sometimes I believe we feel as though if we could just amass a big enough crowd, that's a pretty small church, 120 people, not a large mega church by any means of thousands or tens of thousands, but just 120 sincere waiting adults filled with the Holy Spirit who went from this room, who filled Jerusalem with their doctrine, and who turned the world upside down. Sometimes we feel if we could just recruit enough people, if we could just get enough warm bodies together, if this silent majority would become a vocal majority, we would be able to affect society. 
But I believe that it will take more than just sheer numbers of thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people to change the moral problem of our country. It'll take 120 spirit-filled believers who under the anointing, unction, and power of God go forth under the model laid down for us in the book of Acts and if it worked for them in their generation it will work again and does work again in our generation. You say, well they have di had different problems from us. I really am not persuaded that that's true. They had Sadducees in that day people who did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in angels or demons or any such thing. And so confronting those who were spirit-filled in that day were a group of religious uh, people, ecclesiastical groups who simply denied categorically anything that had to do with the supernatural. They had Pharisees. You see, the, the Sadducees were the liberal crowd. The Pharisees were the legalistic crowd, and, and they believed it all. If you asked them to fill out a statement of faith, they would have said, yes, we believe in, in, in the prophecies. We believe in angels. We believe in devils. We believe in miracles. We believe in the resurrection. But on the inside, you see, the outside, they wore a garment to perfection. But on the inside, the Bible says, they were filled with dead men's bones. They went through the external rituals of the legalistic life of, a, of those who followed the law but had no reality in Jesus Christ. They, they had demonism there. You don't read too far into the book of Acts until you see the occult, very strong, very, very aggressive in their day. How would you like to, to have a community that is predominantly Jewish? Say, well, we couldn't build a church here. Everyone is Jewish. Well, the early church, the 120, started in a Jewish community and built a church of 3,000 in one day because the Holy Ghost took the word and gospel of Jesus Christ and brought to life those who needed to know him. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. What am I saying this morning? We can't do without what these people had. We are totally dependent today, as in their day, on the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If we're going to change our world, it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord God of hosts. And as we look at this passage of Scripture, you'll know that, that it was not just the preacher that was Spirit-filled. But as you read through, you notice that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they all gave witness to the wonderful works of God. And so it's not just for, just for a professional clergy that needs to be anointed and unctionized and Spirit-filled. But I am persuaded that we need each of us enjoying the full provision of Pentecost within our lives as a birthright from God. I want you to notice two questions that are asked in this chapter. They're not new, but the first question asked by the people who came observing this phenomenon was, what meaneth this? What does this mean? And after Peter answered that scripturally, then they asked the question, what do we need to do? 
And I am persuaded, too, that these two questions need to be asked and answered in every generation, ours included. What does this mean? What meaneth this? I'd like for you to see a change of positions that take place in the second verse. It says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Verse 14 is the contrast, and Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said to them, Ye men of Judea, and all the men of Judea, of Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. This experience that they received was in a sitting position. Now that's significant because we're not talking now just about a physical position, but a spiritual position. It was not a position of, of working or wrestling or struggling, but sitting. These people were at rest in God. They were waiting upon the Lord, and he simply fulfilled the promise of his word. Post-Pentecost, after they had been filled with the Spirit, magnifying God in a language that he gave to them, they were standing to declare the truth about Jesus Christ. Let me insert this right here. This experience of Pentecost will get you off your seat and on your feet. So the title for what we want to share with you this morning is Pentecost, the power of God that will get you off your seat and on your feet. They started out sitting, but when the Holy Spirit came, they changed their position and they were standing together declaring truths about Jesus Christ. That declaration changed the lives of 3,000 people who came to hear. And as we observe the, the phenomenon that took place on the day of Pentecost, I want you to notice with me that the witnessing that the multitude did created the crowd to whom Peter had the privilege of preaching. And without their witness, their collective witness together, Peter would have had no congregation to preach to and there would have been no altar call given to which people could respond. Now with that in mind, I want you just to look with me at those verses from verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there was dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. And when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own language wherein we are born? And then 17 different countries are named. I won't read those. But verse 11 says, we do hear them speak in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. Now that is significant. When it was noised abroad, all of them, as the Holy Spirit unctionized and gave them the words to say, 
they began to glorify and magnify God and give witness to the wonderful works of the Lord. It was as a result of their spirit-anointed witness that the crowd was attracted to Christ. And when they came and ob observed what was taking place, the question arose, what does this mean? What is this all about? And I am persuaded that's God's plan for church growth. That it can't all happen from the pulpit. I think there is a place and a function, and we see that place and function happen here, whereby questions are answered from the Word of God. But every one of us anointed to witness the wonderful works of God will attract the multitude who need to hear and have their question answered. What does this mean? And I'm persuaded too that the first effect of Pentecost recorded in this passage is worship. It wasn't preaching. It wasn't teaching. It was worship. And as the Holy Ghost gave expression in languages they not, had not learned, they were all from Galilee, but all 17 representative countries could hear them speak in their own tongue the wonderful works of God. They were declaring those characteristics and qualities about God that, that exalted Jesus and exalted the Lord. Let me say to you, I still believe that the first evidences of the Holy Spirit's fullness in a person's life is worship. It will help us magnify the Lord, exalt his name together. I believe that a characteristic of a spirit-filled church is spirit-filled worship. And one of the first signs of death in a church is the lack of spirit-filled worship. It's characteristic of the Holy Spirit to take the things of Christ and show them unto us. And I'm here this morning to see Jesus, aren't you? That he would take the things of Jesus and reveal them unto us. And the crowd that gathered to listen heard the wonderful works of God. Now we're not talking about worship that just is confined to this room. God forbid because I believe that in a spiritual life from Ephesians 4, one of the first things, be being filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And so there is what David says, his praise shall continually be in my, my mouth. So that an evidence of the Holy Spirit's fullness is that what comes out of our innermost being is a river of living water that gives praise and glory and honor of the Lord. Hallelujah. So much so that, that the people were amazed. Look at the, at the adjectives that describe the people. When it was noised abroad, they were confounded. Verse 7, they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not these all Galileans? But we hear them in our own tongue. We can't understand this. There's something here we can't explain. Verse 
twelve, and they were all amazed and in doubt, saying one to another, What does this mean? Others mocked and said, These men are full of new wine. Some very strong adjectives that would describe a reaction and response. Let me say to you, when is the last time someone was amazed at your experience? Someone was confounded. Someone was bewildered. They saw something they couldn't explain. They felt something they didn't recognize. And all the prayer of my heart is that every time we have service, people who walk into this sanctuary will be greeted with a presence they can't feel anywhere else. That there will be a presence that they cannot explain. There will be phenomena they do not understand. So that indeed they might ask, what does this mean? Aren't you glad for the way Peter, Peter handed that, handled that question and that problem? He was able to take the word of God and just simply say chapter and verse. Chapter and verse. This is that which was in Joel chapter 2, verse 38, when he prophesied, In the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy upon your servants and your handmaidens in that last day. I will pour out of my spirit, saith the Lord. Now, I believe we ought to be able to answer people who ask, What does this mean? with chapter and verse. Not just strange happenings that have no basis for, for action or activity. Not just some things that happen that we're not quite sure where they originated or why we do them, but oh, thank God, we should be able, with whatever takes place, to point to chapter and verse and say, well, Paul wrote to Timothy in first first, uh, his first letter, chapter 2, verse 8, he said that all, all men should lift up their hands holy hands without wrath and doubting. So we do that because the Bible says we should. And so we clap our hands because David in Psalm 47 said, Oh, clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with a voice of praise. Why do we use instruments to worship the Lord? Well, chapter and verse, Psalm 150 says, We should praise the Lord in his sanctuary. And we should praise him for his excellent goodness. We should use the, the trumpet and the cornet and the cymbal and, and the timbrel and, the, and the, the cornet and the organ. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. And so we do that because chapter and verse tells us why we should do it, when we should do it, how we should do it. So Peter simply opened the scripture and he pointed to the scriptural answer to the question, what does this mean? This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Hallelujah. So I don't think anything should go on in our lives or anything should go on in our service that we can't give a scriptural basis for why we do it. We're not advocating anything goes. We're not advocating chaos. What we're advocating is that which has been promised of God to be active and enjoyed by the people of God. Hallelujah. So 
Peter's response. Let's look at the preacher for a moment. God's choice instrument and vessel. He was not a, an educated man. And I certainly don't want to make too much of this because lazy people look for loopholes to say, well, you know, you don't have to have that. I believe education enlarges our opportunities for service for God. So this is no premium on ignorance. I don't think God places a premium on, on ignorance, but I think it is pointed to the fact that education is not a substitute for the Spirit. As wonderful as it is, and as, as many doors as it will open, it will enlarge your, your potential for God to use you. So I will not certainly put a premium on that. But I need to say to you this morning that it is not a substitute for the Spirit of God. God can use it when it's anointed, but it won't, won't accomplish anything without his anointing. In a chapter or two, it identifies Peter as an ignorant and unlearned man, an unlearned man, but they took note that he had been with Jesus. And let me just hold out for those of you who did not have opportunity to go any farther, and you don't have any opportunity from this point on to go any farther. Under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, God can use you far beyond what you could possibly imagine he could do. Peter was a reclaimed backslider. God was able to use a reclaimed backslider. He was known to use him for profanity once in a while, but God was able to forgive him, restore him, recommission him, and use him for his glory. Hallelujah. The preaching that he shared with them, 520 words. Not a long sermon. A good sermon doesn't have to be long. A bad sermon shouldn't be. And you can preach the everlasting gospel without being eternal. 520 words. And it's interesting to note that 200 of them, or over 200 of them, were direct quotes from the Old Testament. So almost half of what he had to say, he quoted from Old Testament scriptures, simply pointing to them the fact that this now was fulfillment of what had been prophesied 24 generations before. Joel, who had shared under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, truths that at this moment were being fulfilled. And he quoted most of what he had to say from the scriptures. Preach the word. Not our ideas about the word, but he preached Christ. And I love that. When you read through what he had to say, it simply takes us from the incarnation, through his miracles, to the crucifixion, to his being buried in the tomb, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation. He preached just the gospel in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may want to follow just briefly that set of, of circumstances. Verse 22, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man 
approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel of the foreknowledge of God. Now that is an important statement to make. Who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Who was it? Well, he was delivered by the determinate counsel of God. He went to the cross by the will of God. He was delivered up by the Father to die for us all. And I'm glad for the eternal plan. Living Bible says it was God's prearranged plan. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So he said, ye have taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David, speaking concerning himself, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, and I shall not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover was my flesh, my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer the, thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, and thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended to heaven, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Isn't that a marvelous message from God? Just simply exalting the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God under salvation to everyone who believes. That's the central message that we have to share to the world. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. We cannot deviate from this pattern and fulfill the purposes of God for his church. It is Jesus from beginning to end. Why? He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. He's the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by him, and the Holy Spirit will take him and reveal him to us and reveal him through us. I must have him.
I must. We cannot do without him. We depend totally upon him. There was an agreement between all of them. They were all witnesses of the resurrection. And I underscored this in the text. Verse 32, this Jesus hath God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. Peter standing up with the eleven, verse 14, and sharing Christ. I shared in the early service the fact that about 15 years ago or so, preaching from this chapter, that particular verse, I said to the Lord, how wonderful it would be to have eleven men stand up with you, stand behind you while you're preaching, giving witness, bearing witness, supporting you in prayer, agreeing, saying amen while you are preaching. And uh, I asked God to give me 11 men who would stand with me in prayer in preparation for Sunday. Making that known, we called a prayer meeting for the following Saturday night. That Saturday night, God gave me 11 men that prayer meeting, that first Sunday or Saturday evening that we had men's prayer meeting. And there were three or four in the early service, and I'm wondering how many of the original 11 men are with us this morning. You were in that prayer meeting that first Saturday night. I know, David, you were there. Hank was there. Richard Nixon was there. Anybody else that was a part of that original 11 men? And there has been a men's prayer meeting every Saturday since that day. And I think a lot of what takes place on Sunday can be attributed to what takes place on Saturday. For yesterday, about 34 men gathered together, and Steve made us some good breakfast, and then we went to pray. And we had a Baptist pastor with us yesterday. We've had Presbyterian pastors with us, and we just meet to pray and seek the face of God makes a difference when you're not standing alone. Peter stood up with the 11, and he had 11 men saying amen. Boy, does that help a preacher. And 11 men praying, God anoint him, God bless him, God use him. That really makes a difference in how things happen during the half hour that we share the truth of the word of God in the service. And I thank God for these men and uh, the time that they invest on Saturday to seek the face of God. There will be very little accomplished apart from prayer and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. What shall we do? Verse 37, when they heard this, they were convicted, said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men, brethren, what shall we do? Peter's answer, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, your children, to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The response to that second question is very clear. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Tonight's service is a water baptismal service. It is not an option. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, it is part of the answer. It's part of the response. You need to be baptized. You need to give witness to your salvation. Not in order to save you, but because you've been saved. 
you give a very clear witness of the fact of your regeneration for being buried with him by baptism like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father even so we should walk in newness of life for being planted together in the likeness of his death we also are raised in the likeness of his resurrection hallelujah so if you haven't you need to be to give witness to the fact that you have been born again and one step farther in the same passage the promise is extended to as many as the Lord our God shall call if you've been saved and you've been baptized in water you too need and can enjoy the gift of God which is the Holy Ghost it's a neglected truth that we don't share often enough and perhaps you haven't received because you've never heard but the Holy Spirit wants you to know this morning that not only can you come into new life in Jesus Christ you see Bethlehem is God with us Emmanuel Calvary is God for us he died once for all for us Pentecost is God in us and we need him indwelling us he said I will be with you and shall be in you hallelujah you need to be saved you need to be baptized in water and you need to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise is unto you your children to all that are far off if the Lord's called you you don't earn it you receive it just like you received Jesus he is the gift of God which is eternal life through Jesus Christ you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit the same way by faith by grace in a seated position oh not physically but spiritually you understand me you're not working for it that's a wage a gift is received with Thanksgiving but it'll get you off your seat and on your feet it'll get you off your feet and on your feet they started out sitting but after Pentecost they were on their feet father I pray that you will do for us again and again and again as often as each generation comes what is necessary to build the body and the bride of Christ for we recognize that it is not by our efforts without him but he working with us confirming his word with signs that follow we thank you Lord for the pattern you've given us Christ 